Are you a hero? I doubt uh, any of us uh, here would say, I'm a hero. Uh, most of us are far too humble uh, to call ourselves heroes. Uh, but then again, uh, heroes are what we are in character. The news uh, in the state of Iowa where I lived uh, for 23 years is tame compared to the news here in Los Angeles. Uh, in fact, uh, my hometown Upland is on the national news this morning for uh, a nanny who will not leave, who's holed up in a bedroom and, and won't be evicted. Uh, but what surprises me most is uh, the amount of scary situations that you see on the news. We've been transfixed watching a number of these uh, live police chases across the city that uh, last uh, an hour or more and uh, closing our eyes when they finally catch the person because we don't want to see what's going to happen. Uh, but they also have these fiery wrecks on the freeway and they'll have someone with a cell phone who will video uh, a person rushing up to a burning car and opening the door and pulling someone out. And then the news will interview the person and say, you're a hero, you rescued that person from a burning car. And the person will say, I'm not a hero. Uh, anyone who was available who was standing there would have jumped in and have done exactly what I would have done. Heroes are who we are in our character. But many of us have such a low view of ourselves and our usefulness to God that when God comes calling and asks us to stand up for him, uh, we say, that's not the way you made me. I'm not prepared for that. Uh, I don't intend to volunteer to be used by you. And the problem that I see in the assemblies around the country is too few people are leading and too few people are working. And most of the body in that local representation says, I'm not skilled, I'm not gifted, I'm not useful. Don't look at me. Look at someone else to carry the work forward. If you open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 32, uh, we read here from what we might call the Hall of Fame or the Hall of Faith, more accurately, of some of the heroes throughout the Old Testament that lead us to believe that were we to have faith like they have, we could be like them. And yet, most of us would say, well, that'll be a person I'll look up to. But I'm too weak to do what they would do. But in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 32, we read, And what more shall we say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, 
And notice this phrase. From weakness were made strong. That's my message in a nutshell. That small phrase. Because too many of us in this room this morning would say to God as he comes calling, asking us to step up and be used by him, will say, I'm too weak. I'm not gifted. Don't choose me. But from what material does God grow heroes? From the material that we just described. From those who had been weak, whom he made strong, so that he would receive all the glory. Turn now to Judges chapter 6. We'll pick out of this list a particular hero that's mentioned. The hero Gideon. And in Judges chapter 6, he is an unlikely hero because he does not believe that he's capable of doing that which God asks of him. We're in the time in which everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. We're at the time in which people wanted to live at peace among their godless neighbors. We're at a time in which society was pluralistic, more than one religion living side by side with each other. We're in a time in which there is privatization of religion, meaning that I'll have my religion, you can have yours, I'll respect yours, you respect mine. Will this work for God? You can read through Deuteronomy and the prophecies that the Lord gave to his people regarding what would happen when he placed them in the land if they were to adopt the practices of those who lived among them. The Israelites were not completely abandoning the worship of God, but they were adding to their worship of the one true God, the worship of Baal and of his female consort, the Asherah. And consequently, God let them fall into the hands of their enemies. And it repeats over and over throughout the book of Judges. And here we are on the third repetition by the time we get to chapter 6 of God giving Israel into the hands of the Midianites. I'm reading from Judges 6, beginning with verse 1. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens, which were in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Malachites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. 
We too live in an age like this in which people are doing evil in the sight of the Lord. We too live in a pluralistic society with a variety of religions all around us. We too live in a time in which we are taught from our grade school years that what you believe, you may believe, and what I believe, I may believe, even though the two contradict each other. I'll have my private faith, you can have your private religion. We live in the times of the judges. So what does God do? He allows his prophecies to be fulfilled, and regularly he allows them to fall into the hands of their enemies. This time it's the Midianites. They're descended from Abraham and the wife he took late in life, Keturah. They fought against Israel when they were in the wilderness wanderings. Moses himself had to put them away. But now, rather than occupying Israel outright, they just come at harvest time and take everything for themselves. Israel is too weak to fight, and so they try to take a little bit of grain with them or a little bit of food and go hide in the wilderness, hide in dens and caves and the like, trying not to be found and try to hold on to some food for themselves but they steal all the livestock they can find, they take all the crops they can find, and they burn the rest, trying to lead, leave Israel with nothing to eat. But Israel then realizes that they have no way to solve this themselves, and they cry out to the Lord for rescue. And they're vulnerable enough that perhaps they will listen to the truth. So rather than sending them an immediate rescuer, God sends them first a prophet, an unnamed prophet, who will remind them of the power of God to rescue them, if they would just call on him. Verse 7, now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. In our own lives, there are times uh, where our circumstances are so unpleasant that we look back across our lives and we take stock of it and we say, is God trying to get my attention? Have I not listened to the Lord? Have I not been living in close relationship with the Lord? Have I not been serving him? What does the Lord want? This is a time in which the people are interested to know, will the Lord rescue us? I want you to notice that God begins with one man, one unlikely hero that he specifically calls and says, I will make of you a liberator. Verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiazrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. 
Normally, when you were uh, threshing grain or beating wheat and the like, you would be up on a higher hill, a flat area, sometimes uh, a stony top, uh, where you could throw the chaff up in the air and the breeze would come by and blow it away and let the grain fall down right where you're at. It was usually a wide open place that was breezy. In those days, when they made a wine press, they dug it into the ground, right into the rocky soil, uh, made what almost looked like a small well in the ground. Who beats wheat in a well? Well, Gideon doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want his food stolen. He's trying to feed his family. It's that dangerous. And a stranger comes, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appears like a man. And as we read through the various uh, passages of the angel of the Lord, uh, we realize that he is identified with God, but speaks to God and is different from God person to person. Uh, perhaps our best guess as to who the angel of the Lord is, is that perhaps he is a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ himself, the second member of the Trinity, come to speak God's will to the people. Appearing like a visiting guest, the angel of the Lord comes to visit Gideon. Verse 12, he appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Gideon doesn't feel like a warrior at all. No experience in battle, uh, no great uh, heroic acts. And Gideon, not realizing to whom he's speaking, is, I would think, rather sassy the way he responds. He says, oh, my Lord, uh, this is not a term referring to deity, but a term referring to a guest with respect. Oh, my Lord, if... The Lord, that is Yahweh, is with us, then why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. I don't know your personal prayers before the Lord, but perhaps uh, each of us at times have said to God, I just don't understand why you're allowing these things to happen in my life the way they're happening. I thought it would go completely differently. This was not my plan. Why are you doing this? It doesn't make sense to me. You've been so good to my ancestors in the past. You've been so good to my relatives. You've been so good to my friends. Why not me? Why are you doing this to me? And yet you'll notice that they're on completely different planes. Gideon would like to complain that God has not rescued them. The angel of the Lord would like to say, God is going to rescue your people through you. God begins with one person. And then he says, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? There are times when we are unsure of God's will, and there are other times when we're sure what he wants, but we're resistant to go his way. I felt that as a, a teenager, where 
I was wrestling within myself whether I would yield to God no matter what he said or whether I'd take all of his leading under advisement considering whether I would agree with him and whether I would perceive that I would enjoy what it was he was asking me to do. Silly, isn't it? And yet many of us regularly negotiate with God the best deal we can get. (laughs) And we don't imagine that God could empower us to do things beyond what we can imagine in our own minds. Gideon says in verse 15, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is in the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. It's true. Near Easterners are humble, especially in greeting strangers. They're not going to brag. But Gideon is also right in the sense that he is not logically the person you would pick, nor even from this particular tribe. Why me? But that's not the question we should be asking God. Why me? We should be asking the God, we should be asking God, what would you have me to do? It seems to me that often on our experiences, we try to use our human logic to understand God's workings. And unless we can understand it, we'll say it can't possibly be. But listen to these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before the Lord. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. His ways are higher than ours. His wisdom beyond our scrutiny. Who are we to say to him that he is unwise in what he chooses? It is clear God has come to speak to Gideon and to call him to be the one who will lead his people free. The Lord said to him clearly, Verse 16, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. And Gideons begin to understand this is not an ordinary man. I may be talking to the angel of the Lord. He wonders, can I test him to see if he really is who he says he is? Perhaps you remember that Jesus complained to his disciples, the Jews are always asking for a sign. Gideon says, 
If I've now found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please don't depart from here until I come back and bring out my offering and lay it before you. His guest said, I'll remain until you return. In their Eastern culture, they would go out of their way to prepare lavish meals for guests that had even arrived without expectation. And though it would take quite a while to achieve uh, this sumptuous meal, uh, his guest is patient, and Gideon goes and prepares what seems to be everything that he has to give. Uh, verse 19, he went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from a whole ephah of flour. This would probably use up all that he had. He put the meat in a basket, the broth in a pot, and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. Then the angel of the Lord said, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock. Pour out the broth. He did so. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire sprang from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. You wanted a sign? that God was speaking with you, you just had your sign, and you don't have any leftovers to take home to your family because it's all been burned up. You want to know that God has called you? You just saw it. And you know that Gideon immediately realizes that was the angel of the Lord, and he says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face, and he fears that he will die. Right now on the news media and the bookstores, you'll see all kinds of books of people who supposedly died for a few minutes and come back to tell us what heaven is like, and it's always in their own images. It's always uh, from their own perspectives, and none of them have the fear of God that you see in every revelation of God that we see in the scriptures. Immediately getting and thinks, I'm going to die. But the Lord says to him, peace to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. And to this day it's still there in Ophrah of the Abiazrites. Now, most of us have grown up in Sunday school and in the local church meetings where we know this story well and we know what's going to happen. And we realize that Gideon needs to have some training to bring him to the point where he'll be brave enough to lead an army against uh, such an uh, indomitable foe as the Midianites. And God starts with his own home and the fact that Gideon's own father has brought an idol into his home. And God says, before you lead my people free, I want you to cleanse your own house. Tear down your father's idol. Now, some of us today can hardly imagine what idol worship is like. We have grown up in a civilization uh, that uh, does not commonly actually worship graven images. 
But my oldest sister, who actually grew up in the same home as me with the same parents attending the same uh, church meetings I did, uh, in her rebellious stage as a young adult, actually set up in her home a little house with little ceramic idols with food set out in front of it. I was visiting her and I took a look at her little altar there and saw the food and all and I said, what's the food for? She said, in case they want to eat. And I said, it doesn't look like they've eaten. She said, it's there in case they want to eat. The scripture speaks of the idiocy of us in our own hands, whether we're carving wood or fashioning ceramic, making an idol and then worshiping it. It makes no sense. But we in our own humanness want to control our own religion and want to design it in a manner that fits us with our ability to control how we relate to that deity. If we were to look in our own homes, we may not have ceramic idols, but we might have many things that distract us from the Lord, many things that entertain us, many things that keep us from devotion to the Lord. And you'll notice before God is going to release them from their enemies, Gideon is asked to clean his own house. Verse 25, that same night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull. Yep, you're going to use your father's own tractor against him. And a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that's beside it. In this case, the Asherah was represented by a tall wooden pole that had carvings on it as well. It represents the female consort to the Baal. Build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, Take the second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Now, this is rather scary. Um, how am I going to do this and live? My entire family, my entire village, my people worship this image. And I'm going to tear it down? And they're going to let me get away with it? I'd like you to notice that even faltering obedience is obedience. So you may be kicking the ground and slapping things as you're going around. But what did Jesus talk about, the two sons, as to whether they would go in the field and do the work? Which one was better? The one who said, oh, sure, I'll do it, and then never did it or the one who grumbled but at least went out and did the work. So some of us will say to ourselves, I've got such a bad attitude, I'm not even going to start to obey God. I would suggest to you, faltering obedience is better than no obedience at all. Gideon says to himself, I'm doing this at night. I hope I can get away with this. And he takes 10 of his men 
and does exactly what the Lord had spoken to him because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day. He did it by night. Maybe he's not quite at the level that the Lord is trying to stretch him to become, but at least he's heading down the right path and he's torn down the altar. He has killed that bull. He has made a sacrifice to the one true God and he's taken a stand against the pluralism of worshiping Baal. I imagine he thought he wasn't going to get caught, but be sure your sins will find you out. Uh, It's true. People regularly get caught. When I first left Upland and went to La Mirada to study at Biola University, it was the first time I was away from home, living in a dormitory of all freshman guys, And I got into a series of practical jokes and pranks uh, on uh, my neighbors. Uh, They retaliated against me. It escalated and got worse and worse until one night I'd snuck out of my window and the sheriff's department was hovering with their helicopter, shining lights around and all. I did my dastardly deed, climbed back through my window thinking that no one had caught me. And within minutes, the resident assistant was knocking on the door, accusing me of the crime. We will get caught. You will not get away with these things. And in verse 28, the men of the city arose early in the morning. Behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah which was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. They said to one another, Who did this thing? When they searched about and inquired, they said to Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. I imagine one of his ten servants turned him in. They said, it's him. In retaliation for that event, I just described um, the the guy that I pranked at night was friends with most of the wrestling team and talked them into attacking me. I suspected on a particular night they were going to, so I was locked in my dorm room, and they were pounding on the door. Uh, I felt like three little pigs inside, you know, not by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin, am I going to open this door and let you in? But they threatened my roommate and said eventually, through persuasion through the door, that they would let him go if he would open the door, which he did, and they attacked. Yep, someone is going to turn you in, and they say it was Gideon. So the men of the city say to Joash's dad, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah, which was beside it. I don't know how that makes you feel, but that's completely backwards of what I read in the Old Testament law. It was the worshipers of false gods who would be taken outside the city in stone. And look at how far Israel has gone to where you tear down my altar, you're the one that's going to die. And I suspect we live in a nation that is becoming closer and closer to the point where our religious freedoms will be taken away from us and where we will not be able to speak the truth without it being labeled hate speech. And we will find ourselves in a situation in which 
What is good is called bad, and what is bad is called good. You can see it right in this situation. He tore down my altar of Baal. We want to kill him. But suddenly, Joash, Gideon's dad, grows a spine. And he stands up to the people of the city and says, Now figure this. Isn't Baal a god? Why aren't we fight, Why are we fighting for him? Why doesn't he fight for himself? Why let Baal go after my son? Sick Baal on my son. He says, will you contend for Baal? Or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore, on that day, Gideon's dad named him Jerubbabel. That is, let Baal plead or let Baal contend against him because he has torn down his altar. This nickname was meant as a term of derision, but it actually became a source of pride for Gideon because, sure enough, he did not die and Baal did not get him because Baal doesn't exist. And every day that Gideon lived with the name, let Baal contend against him, he lived in testimony that Baal could not touch him because there's only one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Many of us, as we hear this familiar story, say to ourselves, we're good for Gideon. I'm glad he's becoming a hero, and I'm glad that he's standing up for what is right, and I'd be happy to stand up for what is right as long as you don't ask me to stand up and say anything. Because that's not my gift. Character is what you are in the dark. You know who said that? A guy whose daddy died when he was just a little grade schooler. A guy who never had an education past the sixth grade. A guy who as a young teen had to leave his family and go into the big city and live with his uncle and try to make a living outside of the family. He's the kind of guy you wouldn't think would amount to anything wouldn't grow to be the world's best evangelist because he was an ordinary guy. God uses ordinary people. This is what he said as an adult. If this world is going to be reached... I'm convinced that it must be done by men and women of average talent. After all, there are comparatively few people in this world who have great talents. Some of us are so selective in the things that we'll do for our local assembly that we will say, no, I don't do that, or no, I don't do that, or no, I don't do that. This same man of which I'm describing, 
man who grew to be the world's best evangelist, said, there are many of us that are willing to do great things from the Lord, but few of us who are willing to do the little things. And I have friends who, when we're trying to flip a room and set up tables and chairs and get it ready for the next meeting, we'll be standing on the side talking and saying, well, that's not my gift. And I'll tell you, it doesn't take a lot of gift to set up a table and set up a chair. And yet people are so selective, saying, why would I do that? I know of other people who will only mow the lawn in front of the chapel building if other people can see them do it. So it's timed, just as people are arriving. Why? Because it's not enough for God to see. The people of the assembly have to see it as well. That's just wrong. God wants to raise up people who are so dedicated to him, so sold out to him, that he can use them for mighty acts beyond that which he could ever imagine he could do. This man that I'm describing heard a preacher say, the world has yet to see what God could do through a man who is totally dedicated to him. And this young man said to himself, I'll be that man. And he started to share his faith. He shared his faith with the little street kids all around him. He got so many street kids that he created a school for them. We call it today Sunday school. It grew out of its own buildings. Finally, the mayor of Chicago gave him a huge room upstairs in a building, a room that was abandoned. Take the kids there. Teach them the Bible there. He made a covenant with himself that he would share the gospel with someone every day. Several times he found himself undressed, climbing into bed, saying to himself, I forgot. I didn't share the gospel with anybody today. In one particular time, he describes the experience of saying to himself, I'm not going to lie. I didn't share my faith with anyone today. I have to get dressed and go out and tell somebody. Here it is dark. It's night. I want to go to sleep. He literally gets dressed, and he says he had sort of a bad spirit about himself as he did it, but he marched down the stairs and out on the street and starts looking around for someone to talk to so he can get this out of the way grudging obedience is still obedience. Fledgling obedience is still obedience. He shared his faith with this person just to check it off to say, see, I kept my promise. The person responded and accepted the Lord. How many times do we say, I'm not available to talk to you. I'm too tired. I don't want to. There have been times where I have been sharing my faith with, with people, and they ask so many questions, I grow tired of it. I feel like, can we continue this tomorrow? <laughs> One person said to me, at the time at which I was saying to myself, I think we're going to close this down, he says, I feel convicted. And I was thinking to myself, 
I almost closed down this meeting with this person. We were sitting across the table from each other at Denny's. And at that moment, he says, I feel convicted. Now, where did he come up with a word like that? Well, I told him, I said, you're, you're quoting John 16. That's actually what the Spirit says is taking place in your life right now. And we continued on, and he trusted the Lord. But so often, we close ourselves down and don't make ourselves available, and we say someone else will do it when God is actually calling us. And he wants us to be the one who does it. Listen again to the words that the angel of the Lord said to Gideon. The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior, O man of valor. He goes, I'm no man of valor. He says, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Surely I'll be with you. And shall defeat Midian as one man. And he says, I don't know if I can do that. This evangelist that I'm describing said, real, true faith is man's weakness leaning on God's strength. You probably figured out who I'm talking about. It's D.L. Moody. Became the greatest evangelist of his time, probably the greatest evangelist in the world. And of his fame, he said, I know perfectly well that wherever I go and preach, there are many better preachers, many better preachers than I am. All I can say is, the Lord uses me. And that's what we should be willing to allow happen in our lives. We should be willing to say, I'm willing to let the Lord use me. Would you pray with me to that end? Father, I would ask, therefore, that each of us would examine our own hearts and see to what extent we have allowed ourselves to become distracted by the things of the world around us, not clearly listening to your leading in our lives, frustrated by our circumstances, not believing that we deserve the difficulties that you've allowed into our lives. But perhaps, Father, you've got our attention now and we're listening and you're speaking to us as to what you'd want to do through us and we're resistant, we're afraid, we're nervous as to what that would mean. I pray that you would humble us and then use us for your glory. I pray that you'd use us mightily for your glory. And I pray that we would be willing to do exactly as you ask. We pray these things in Jesus' name.